Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in the book of Judges. Uh, We're going to cover 2 through 4, 6 through 8, 13 through 16, as per Come Follow Me, but then Bryce and I are going to circle the wagons back and then talk about the stuff that's skipped. First of all, let's do a quick overview of the book of Judges. The first one and a half chapters of the book are a transition from the time period of Joshua to the time period of the judges. The judges, the Shofetim, are these chieftains or tribal leaders, and they vindicate, they shafat, that, that's the word, they vindicate or punish the enemies of Israel, and they do make decisions. And so this book is called the Book of Judges, but we don't have anybody holding a gavel. These judges were mostly tribal leaders who delivered their people from oppression. Some of them are lone warriors, and the book of Judges doesn't describe the entire period, but it seems to indicate that it's about 400 years. We think it's organized in a certain way, not chronologically, but thematically, and we'll get into the weeds of this in a little bit. The ending of the book of Judges deals with events that took place at the start of the period, the conquest of Dan, which is up there in the north by the Sea of Galilee. And because it's not chronological, we think that the editor's purpose wasn't just to describe or to record the period, but to teach lessons. That's why the very center of the book is what it is. Yeah. And the center is Gideon. I mean, he's an important lesson here. And so... One of the main themes of the book of Judges is the fact that the judges were not effective. They could only save their people for a limited amount of time. And so this theme of their inability to save invites interpretation. It invites us to think, okay, if they couldn't save them, then who could? That's the key. This book begs us to ask and answer that question. It really does. And at the end of the book, there's all these references where the author over and over again says, everybody did what was right in their eyes, and there was no king amongst the tribes, or there was no king in Israel. And so there's a debate in scholarship when it comes to the book of Judges, Is the book of Judges pro-monarchy or anti-monarchy? And I'm not going to settle that debate for you, but we will look at the text, and then we'll look at Midrash on the book of Judges or commentary on it, and that's the Book of Mormon. We actually have inspired commentary in Mosiah 29 that answers that question. And I think the message of Christianity is the ideal king is Jesus. So that's a big deal. And the degree to which your earthly king is like Jesus, the greater success you're going to have here on earth. Yeah. And so there's lots of other questions that people get into, things like, okay, was this one author? When was the book written? Uh, I think that a good argument can be made that this book is written after the northern kingdom is taken into captivity. You see, in the 18th chapter of Judges, verse 30, a strong clue is given there, And the clue is essentially citing the captivity of the Israelites in that 18th chapter. And so we think it was written after that, probably during the reign of Manasseh. You know, another question that people ask is, okay, how long does the period in Judges last? 
and it's contradictory, but it seems to indicate that it's about 400 years. Now, in 1 Kings 6, verse 1, it says that the time from the Exodus to the building of the temple was about 480 years. So we kind of get that idea, but this is talking about the time period when the tribes don't have the government that they're going to have with the monarchy. A good way to liken this, if you're an American, is you could look at the colonies before we had the Constitution and before we kind of put things together and figured out what kind of government we were going to have. We were kind of like this loose confederation of these nation states, and that's kind of how we have the story depicted in the book of Judges. So the overall structure of the book is basically this. We have a couple of introductions. The first introduction is from chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 5. The second introduction is from chapter 2, verse 6 to 3, verse 6. And then we have a series of seven judges. There's seven times where it says that Israel was messing up. And so the first judge is Othniel. The second one is Ehud. The third is Deborah. And the fourth, the center, is Gideon, and that's chapter 6, verse 1 to 8, verse 32. And then the fifth judge is Abimelech, and then the sixth is Jephthah, and then Samson. He's the seventh. Samson is chapter 13 to the end of 16. Now, there are other judges in there as well, but those are the main judges. We're going to call those the main judges in the book of Judges, but there are others as well that are mentioned. But seven times in the text, it says Israel was messing up. Israel was doing these wrong things. And then God calls up a judge to rise up and to help them out. And then there's two endings to the book. The first ending is in chapter 17, verse 1 to 1831. And then the final is the 19th chapter to the end. And that final epilogue is a very graphic and challenging story, and it's the story of a Levite concubine who dies a horrible death, and it ends in a civil war. And I see why this is skipped in Come Follow Me, but of course, we're going to go and look at it and ask questions like, okay, why did the author put this graphic story in the book of Judges? What is the point, and what is the message? So that's the overall structure of the book. There's a couple introductions, there's a couple endings, and then there's seven series of apostasies that's covering about 400 years. So that's the big picture. And I think there's an overall theme that flows throughout the book of Judges, and that is the pride cycle. Can you imagine getting out of bed every morning and banging your head? At what point do you wake up and say, wait a minute, what am I going to do differently so I stop banging my head? So let me just briefly summarize the pride cycle. We're going to put in our slides, again, the same graphic we used for the Book of Mormon Pride Cycle. So if you've been with us since the Book of Mormon, you'll recognize this. It's a great teaching device. Yeah. The slides are really, we put those together so that if you're teaching, they can see graphically the big picture, right? Yeah. So if you want to pull that out of the slides as we go through this, it might be helpful to have a visual in your mind. But at the very top of this circle, we're going to start with righteousness. That's going to be our starting point, a righteous people. Now, when we are a righteous people, the Lord blesses us. So the next stop on the pride cycle is blessings. Righteousness leads to blessings. You can't stop that. That's the Lord's doing. In fact, the Lord's going to pour out so many blessings that it leads to prosperity. Now, that is a major point on the pride cycle, and I'm going to highlight it. I'm going to shade that and put a box around it, because you need to understand that's a switch point. Prosperity comes because the Lord blesses us. Now, normally, prosperity leads to pride. 
That's the message of the Book of Mormon, that prosperity causes you to think that you're better than other people, and therefore it leads to pride, and pride leads to sin. So we've gone halfway through the circle. We've gone from righteousness, which is at the top of the circle, to sin, which is at the bottom of the circle, and the reason we've gone from righteousness to sin is because the Lord blessed us. This is the banging of the head. We go from righteousness to sin because the Lord blessed us. Now, sin always leads to pain, and that's another switch point that we're going to talk about. Pain is in another box like prosperity. Those are the key moments on the pride cycle, prosperity and pain. But sin always leads to pain in one form or another, whether it's the Lord imposing something like the Philistines come upon you or the Lamanites come and attack you, or it's some other form, but sin always leads to pain. Pain usually leads us to be humble. And that's what we're going to see a great deal in the book of Judges, that when they're conquered by some other nation, that's going to cause the Israelites to finally wake up and turn to humility. Humility leads to repentance, and they begin to repent of their ways, and that leads to righteousness. So there's our cycle. One more time, it's righteousness leads to blessings. Blessings leads to prosperity. Prosperity usually leads to pride. Pride leads to sin. Sin leads to pain. Pain leads to humility. Humility leads to repentance. Repentance leads to righteousness. So the book of Judges begs the question, isn't there a better way? Isn't there a better way than constantly banging your head? The answer is yes, there is a better way. And the better way is the very center of the book of Judges, and that's the story of Gideon. The better way is if prosperity leads you to be humble. So I want you to look at that pride cycle and realize there's a shortcut. If instead of thinking we're better than other people because we're prosperous, we think God is so kind to me and we're grateful and gratitude fills our heart for the blessings we've been given, then prosperity leads to humility and we avoid pride, sin, and pain. But there is another shortcut, and that is sometimes pain leads to pride. When people are in pain, sometimes they blame God. They feel wronged, get wroth, and turn against God. We've seen that so many times so far in the Old Testament, that when they're in pain, they turn against God instead of turning to God. The interesting fact of the pride cycle is that both prosperity, which we put a box around, and pain, which we put a box around, offer the same choices. In both situations, we can either choose humility or pride. When prosperity comes, the question is, will you choose the natural course, which is pride, or will you choose the shortcut, which is humility? In pain, will you choose the natural course, which is humility, or will you choose the shortcut, which is pride? Both prosperity and pain bring critical moments of decision. Will you turn to God and be humble, or will you turn away from God and be prideful? 
So let me just show you a few cycles of the pride cycle in the book of Judges. Chapter 1, chapter 2, they're faithful as long as Joshua was around, but then Joshua leaves and they turn away. So chapter 2, verse 11, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served Balaam. So sin is going to lead to pain and they're going to be conquered. So in verse 14, he delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them. That's a general statement of the whole pride cycle, that spoilers spoiled them and sold them into the hands of their enemies. And then when they get humble, in their pain, they're going to cry out to the Lord. So for example, turn to chapter 3 in verse 9. When the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them. Every time humility leads them to righteousness, the Lord blesses them with prosperity. Do you see that upper part of the cycle? Repentance and righteousness bring blessings and prosperity, and a deliverer is sent to conquer them from the pain they're in. And those of you keeping score at home, verse 7 of chapter 3 is the first of the judges. So this is the first of the section of 7. And so we get this guy, verse 9, Othniel, and notice he's Caleb's younger brother. He is the son of Kenaz. He is an outsider. And what I mean by that is this is a descendant of Esau. So Caleb and Othniel are descendants of Esau. And one thing we'll see in this group of these seven judges is they kind of represent the otherness of the judges. Because Israel is worshiping other gods, these judges could be seen as deliverers, but they're not in the perfect mold of the perfect deliverer. We're going to see what what I'm going to call outsiders that kind of are on the fringes. And it's almost like that's a message in here. Like the Lord is saying, essentially, if you're going to do evil... I'm going to give you a deliverer, but it's not going to be what you expect. And so that's the first one. And then in verse 12, we get into the next one. The children of Israel did evil again. It's because in verse 11, Othniel dies. Right, right. He dies. So their deliverer dies. And as soon as he's gone, they're coming out of prosperity. They've conquered their enemy. And as soon as their deliverer is dead, boom, they go right back into sinful portion. Their prosperity leads them to sin, which is going to cause more pain. And here comes the next deliverer, because in verse 15, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And he's going to be Ehud, or it says in the English Ehud, but Ehud, and he it's a pun because he's a Benjaminite, but he's a man who is quote in the Hebrew, bound in the right hand. And the English translators translate that as left-handed. That's a pun. So there's a lot of humor in here. But the idea is if he's the son of the right hand, why is he not using his right hand? In other words, it's not what you expect. He's an outsider and Ehud is going to come out and deliver them. So he's the second one, right? And it's the same pattern Bryce is talking about. They're being knuckleheads. They cry to the Lord, the Lord delivers them, and then the leader dies, and then they're knuckleheads again. Yep, as soon as he's gone, chapter 4, verse 1, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he sends Deborah. And so it's this same pride cycle. It just turns over and over, and we watch them bang their heads every single time, and we're left to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to choose pride in prosperity, which they're choosing every single time. As soon as they're free and they're prosperous, that leads to pride and sin, and therefore here comes more bondage. 
So why not avoid the bondage by going from prosperity to humility? And that's going to be the message of Gideon. So I think that's the overall message is learn from their silliness, learn from their foolishness to avoid the bottom rungs of this pride cycle by skipping it. Let your prosperity lead you to humility. Yeah, that's a really good application. Okay, so with that, we're going to start at the top. We're going to go to the beginning of Judges, and we're going to look at these individual judges and kind of see messages or stories that we can pull out of it. Now, it begins with an interesting phrase that, boy, comes right out of the Book of Mormon as well. After the end of Joshua, after it says that Joshua delivered the people and the people served the Lord during the days of Joshua, is this interesting phrase in chapter 2, verse 10. There arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. It's fascinating that we begin this whole cycle with that message. A new generation came along that didn't experience it, and they didn't remember what God had done in the past. I think there's, there's the in-the-pride-cycle cure, and that is that if we go from prosperity to humility, that's the in-the-pride-cycle cure. But there seems to be a pre-pride-cycle cure. And that is, don't forget God and all the wonderful things which he's done. If we can answer that question that we saw back in Joshua, what meaneth these stones? Well, these stones mean that God will do for you what he has done for us in the past. I think it's very significant that this whole book begins with that concept. You're going to find that same verse in Mosiah chapter 26, verse 1. There arose a new generation who didn't know the words of King Benjamin. They weren't around when King Benjamin spoke. And because of that, they go astray. So we can prevent so many problems by remembering God and remembering the great things that he's done and passing that on to our children. That's a significant beginning to this whole story. There's another interesting like backdrop to this. And it's this denigration of the North. Judges 1, 21 through 36 gives this illustration of the tribes of the North who were in number seven, and they're mentioned from South to North. So you go from Benjamin all the way to Dan, who was forced to leave his inheritance and settle in the North. This order is similar to that of the entire book, which begins with Ehud, the Benjaminite, and concludes with the northward wandering of Dan. We're going to end with Samson. So the northern tribes are represented as being responsible for the major failures to take possession of the land. Because of this overall theme, we're going from south to north, and we're looking at these northern judges. Some people look at this and say that this is a text that was put together after the northern tribes were taken captive by Assyria in 721, and that they're trying to explain why that happened. Why did this happen this way? It's kind of like if something really horrible happened. Let's say you lived in Europe in 1955, and you were a historian, and you would say, what happened to Europe? And you would sit down, and you would start writing your history, and you would say, well, really, World War II happened because of the events that happened in World War I. It was a continuation of this conflict. And then historians would debate and say things like, what caused World War I? 
And then they would kind of go down that rabbit hole. And so there's a lot of rabbit holes with judges. And I want to say Bryce's message of the overall theme is the main thing. I think another main thing in this whole text is who's going to be your king? I think that's a big question. But it starts off with this idea of an angel that gives a warning. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. The angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochum. Now, we think that's Bethel. In the show notes, we actually take the Greek text. We translate that because in the Greek, in the Septuagint text, it's going to identify this place as Bethel. And so it's not in the Hebrew, but the Greek rendering is different. So why is this important? Bethel means the house of God. What happens in verse 1? An angel shows up. Look what the angel says. Don't break my covenant, verse 1. Don't make any leagues with these individuals. Samson, are you listening? Uh, Oh, by the way, um, drive them out, verse 3, or there'll be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare. Now, other authors in the Torah are going to say there'll be thorns in your eyes. And I think that's a hint towards the end of the book of Judges when we get into Samson. And then it says in verse 4, it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and they wept. I think that's foreshadowing the overall message of the book of Judges. The end of the book of Judges ends with a horrible civil war. And I think that the book of Judges overall could be a book of weeping because they don't listen to the words of the angel at Bethel. The angel gives all the answers to what they need to do. If they just do these really simple instructions, we wouldn't have this wreck that's happening in the book of Judges. This text is begging you, the reader, to say, am I going to do the same thing? Am I going to fall back into that same habit, and am I going to continually bang my head, or am I going to rise up from the ashes of their lesson and say, I'm not going to go that route? Excellent. So if you go to chapter 3, 3 through 16, those are the chapters that are going to have the judges. And this first bit here, it says in verse 7, that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord raises up this outsider, this Edomite. Numbers 32 verse 12 is a good reference for that. Or Genesis 36 verses 11 and 15 label Othniel, this Kenizzite, and his younger brother Caleb as outsiders. And God raises them up. And then in verse 11, we have rest for 40 years. And then we get to the second judge. Ehud is the second judge, and once again, the pun, he's an outsider, right? He's a man bound in the right hand. The text will say, a man left-handed, but a Benjaminite, and the Moabites have the Israelites in subjection. Now, what I'm about to say is just based on how scholars look at the text, but it doesn't mean I'm right, and it doesn't mean they're right. But the way they look at this is they kind of see this as a retrojection of their conflicts that they're having at the time this text was written. The argument is essentially this, that Moab doesn't have a kingdom during this time period, that they don't really have a kingdom until about after 900 BC, somewhere in that time period. And so we're off by a few hundred years. And so what they do when they look at this text is they say, okay, this experience in Judges 3 is probably not entirely historical. Now, that being said, I don't know. I wasn't there, but I'm just giving you the argument so that you know for yourselves these are the debates that scholars have. But the point of the text, and this is loaded with punning 
uh, double entendre and lots of humor. I really do think that Judges 3 is supposed to be funny. The story is essentially Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, is going to, quote, bring a gift to this very fat king named Eglon. That's verse 17. And he's on a, quote, secret errand, and he comes to him when he's in the parlor. That's verse 20. And he says, hey, I've got a secret message for you. And uh, Eglon says, well, what is it? And so Ehud takes out his dagger with his left hand. This is verse 21. And he sticks it into the belly of the Moabite king. Verse 22, the haft went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not drop the dagger out of his belly. And the dirt came out. And that word dirt, those are his the gross stuff out of his belly. If you've ever gone hunting and you've gutted a deer, you know that's not the best smelling stuff. And so what's happening? Well, he kills him. Verse 23 says, Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. So he leaves, he locks the doors. And then the servants of the king, not knowing that the king's dead, they see the doors of the parlor were locked. And it says, they said, surely he covereth his feet in the summer chamber. Okay, what does that mean? Like, we're getting into idioms. And so essentially what verse 24 is saying is that Eglon was in a private parlor and the doors are locked. His guards think that he's going to the bathroom. And you can imagine the humor if this was told around a campfire in ancient Israel. And the person playing Eglon probably would make some sounds as if he'd been stabbed. But the joke in the story is, well, his guards think that he's going to the bathroom. And so it's full of that kind of humor. And then there's all these puns, like the word for his parlor and the word for the things that are coming out of his body are punning. Uh, The word, even his name, Eglon, is related to the word for calf. And so we we read about this very fat calf that's being gutted. And so he is a fatted calf that's getting killed. He's being sacrificed to God. So there's all these really cool puns happening in here in the midst of this story. Uh, he falls down dead in verse 25, and Ehud escapes. He, he takes off, and they blow a trumpet in verse 27. So th- there's other puns as well going on in here. I mean, if you look at verse 29, it says, They slew of Moab at that time 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. And that word for lusty, shaman, can be translated as fat. And so we have this uh, another pun happening here with a very fat king being killed and then also very fat men or very lusty men. Uh, That's how it's translated here. There's lots of things going on here, but the idea is that God's delivering them. And I think that they're portraying the king of Moab in a very negative light because I think that's kind of how they told stories. They wanted to denigrate their enemies. What's interesting, too, is Ehud thrusts the sword into Eglon's belly, and that verb, takah, is the same verb they use in verse 27 when they blew the trumpet. So there's all these puns happening here in the text, and it's a great story that would definitely get your attention. But notice it's setting up for Gideon. There's no mention of God being the victor here. The credit is clearly going to Ehud. And I think the text is setting us up for Gideon to say, look, yes, the Lord sent Ehud, a hero, to save them when they were downtrodden and they were subjected, but they're 
They're not going to see that it was the Lord that brought the victory. That's what causes us to go from prosperity to humility. Instead, they're going to see that it was their victory, which is naturally going to lead to pride. Yes, and then we get to Deborah. But notice it's after verse 1, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, can we assume that's because their prosperity made them boastful and prideful, and they took credit for the victory, and they don't need God anymore because things are going really well, and that pride led to sin. We've cycled all the way through, and as they cry out to the Lord, he's then going to send them Deborah to save them again, to pull them out of their painful experience. So big picture with Deborah, she's called a prophetess in verse 4. She's the wife of this fellow Lapidoth. His name means torches. And she goes to this guy, Barak, and she says, let's go fight. We've got to take over these guys that have taken us, that have harmed us, the Canaanites. And verse 80 says, if you go with me, then I will go. And so that's kind of how it starts. But then notice verse 9. She said, surely I will go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera, he's the leader of the enemy of Israel, The Lord shall send Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went with 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went up with him. And Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites, and he pitched his tent in the plains. And it's at this point where we have the story of this man named Heber, and he's going to have a wife named Jael, and she's going to be the one who's going to kill Sisera. So there's two women in chapter four, Deborah and Jael. And the battle takes place in verse 13 to verse 15, where it says in verse 15 that the Lord discomfited the Canaanites, Sisera and his chariots. And and so Sisera kind of runs off the battlefield. And it's when he goes to Jael's tent. Remember, Jael's the spouse of Heber the Kenite. And he says, hey, will you take care of me? Will you guard me? He flees away. And she's like, sure, I'll I'll take care of you. And he says, give me something to drink. He says, I'm thirsty. And so she gives him some milk. And as he falls asleep, she kills him. That's the story. That's basically what happens in Judges 4. And then in Judges 5, it's the song of Deborah. They credit God. See the message? They credit God for the victory here. Yeah. So here's the thing. We don't read it this way because we live in a time period that's way after when this was written. But if we read it or heard this story back in the time when it was textualized, we would see some really cool parallels. And to kind of give you an example, I'll tell you a story about a book that some students of mine said, Brother Day, you've got to read this book. They come up to me with this book, and it's about this young boy, and he he gets this dragon. And the, and the overarching story, and tell me if you've heard this story before, is about a boy, and he's living with his uncle. He doesn't know who his parents are, and he finds out that there's this greater land, there's, there's this greater message. And in the land, there's this dark lord that's ruling over the land, and he's really mean. And this young man finds out that he has a divine mission. And so in the course of the divine mission, he meets this really old wizard who's really wise, who gives him not a lightsaber, but a really interesting power. 
And in the midst of him meeting this old wizard, he meets this other swashbuckling individual that's kind of like a devil may care fellow. And he finds out, oh my goodness, I've got to go rescue the princess. And so they go to rescue the princess. And in the course of this, he learns how to master riding dragons. And the story kind of ends with not blowing up the Death Star, but defeating the Lord temporarily and rescuing the princess and being awarded a great reward. Now, if you've ever watched Star Wars and then you pick up this book, you would say to yourself, this writer took the basic motifs, the the basic themes of Star Wars and packaged it in a story, not about Luke, but about a young man who's like Luke, not living in space, but living in a time when there were dragons. And so if we read Deborah, if we read her story through that lens, we can see some really interesting parallels. You can almost see the writers of Judges taking the story that everybody knew. Her name wasn't Deborah, but sometimes she would be called Ishtar or Inanna, or other cultures called her Aphrodite or Ashtaroth. Lots of different names. The Israelites were surrounded by great empires, the Assyrians and the Mesopotamians. And so there's an actual text called the Descent of Ishtar. She was this goddess that made a descent into the abyss, into the netherworld or into Hades. Now, we link this stuff in the show notes because it could be a whole podcast on the descent of Ishtar as it is Deborah. And so I'm going to give you just a brief overview of this. Both Deborah and Ishtar sing in battle. Ishtar has seven names, and in the Hebrew text of Judges, Deborah is given seven descriptors or seven things that describe her. Both of these individual women sit under a palm tree. Ishtar has mountain goats with her. Now, the word Yael in Hebrew means goat. In the English, it's spelled J-A-E-L. So we have this story in Judges 4 about this other woman who kills Sisera, and her name is Yael. Literally, Yael means mountain goat. And so both Ishtar and Deborah direct war. Both are associated with lions. Ishtar had a lion that she would ride or that she would be in charge of. Literally, in, in some of the texts of this year, in text, they would say that the lion is, quote, the dog of Ishtar, meaning that she rules over the lion. Now, you might say, well, what does Deborah have to do with a lion? Well, you see, Deborah means bee or honeybee. And we have a story in Judges of a beehive in a carcass of a lion. And so you can almost see the writers of Judges playing with these motifs that the bee is ruling over the lion in the text, at least as you read Samson's story. And then you get into this idea of the lion lady. Asherah is going to be called the lion lady. And this is a little bit strange, but just bear with me. The lion is a symbol for Judah to the Hebrews, but the lion is a symbol of strength or nobility. And Asherah as the lion lady, as the consort of God. In other words, you come into the Holy of Holies where there's milk and honey, which are also symbols of the bee, also symbols of the Asherah tree. And there's a lion there. Well, sometimes the thrones would have lions stylized in the thrones. And so just, just work with me on this image. You've got to kind of relax your eyes a little bit, but you can kind of see it. So we have Ishtar with the lion. We have the bee ruling over the lion. Both of these individuals, Ishtar and Deborah, offered omens and prophecies, and they both directed warfare from on top of a mountain. 
And so you start putting these things together and you start looking at it and you start asking questions and saying, okay, what was the intent of the author? And I don't know, but I think what if it was this? What if the author was taking the story that everybody knew and was showing Israelites, hey, the Syrians have their story, but we have Deborah and Deborah is the real deal. She's the real story. And in another way, Deborah could kind of represent the divine mother. She has power. She's sitting under the palm tree. She's saving Israel. In other words, a feminine judge, which is what she is. I love this stuff. I love to read it this way. I like to see Deborah also, this image of a bee. I think we're back to the temple, this image of a hive as a temple or the people of God. And so Brigham Young used that symbol too. And it's even on the state flag of Utah. It is, right? Yeah, the old one. The old one, yeah. We're We're replacing it. We're changing the flag in Utah. But I think that that's a great symbol for God's organized people. Uh, Deborah is related to, once again, Debar, where we have the Devere, the oracle. The Holy of Holies is called the Devere, the place of speaking, where we get the word or the Debar. So that's pretty good stuff. So the song of Deborah is really beautiful. I mean, You could read that in class. That's a really good song to read about how God delivered Israel. And even notice verse 7, it's describing Deborah as, quote, a mother in Israel. Beautiful image. But the sad thing is, all the success that they had with Deborah, they're going to forget. Their pride is going to lead them into sin. So once again, chapter 6, verse 1, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. So again, we're cycling through, and they're not learning the lesson that if you skip the pride part, you can stop banging your head. Well, we're going to assume that in chapter 6, verse 7, they're crying to the Lord, they're repenting, they're desiring salvation, they're desiring redemption from their enemies. And so, verse 7, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midians, the Lord sent a prophet. So now we get to the fourth judge, which is Gideon. Now remember, there are seven judges. Gideon is the fourth you see the symbolism of that? Three came before Gideon, three will come after Gideon. This is the center point. And in that chiasmic structure that ancient Israel was so fond of, this is the center point. And this story's different because the Lord steps in from the very beginning. Gideon is sitting under an oak, which is very symbolic. And the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now, what's his response? What's Gideon's response? What? Me? Are you talking to me? I can just picture him looking around for, who are you talking to? Because you can't be talking to me. Do you see that humility from the very beginning? That's the key right there. Gideon says in verse 13, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of? Then he quotes about the miracles. Then the angel says, Go in this thy might, thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midian. And he doesn't believe him. He doubts him. Verse 15, Wherefore shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. There's the answer. So we're starting the story in a very different way. 
Gideon is, I'm the least in my family. How am I the one? Verse 16, surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. So there's this whole, let's just pause in the story. There's this whole story about Gideon feeling unsecure and wanting confirmation, and it says that he's seeking a sign, but I think there's a balance to that. He's not really saying, show me and then I'll believe. He's, I believe, now can you confirm my belief? So we've got a couple stories in here that kind of are going to help Gideon know that, yes, you are the one that's going to do this. When we're looking at chapter 6, he says essentially in verse 36, if you will save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, and then he asks for a couple of signs. He says in verse 37, if I put a fleece of wool on the floor, and if the dew is on it, and it's dry on the earth, then I know. And then he kind of reverses it. Verse 38 says, and it was so, so he had the sign given. And he rose up early on the morrow and thrust the fleece together and wrung out the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. He said unto God, let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it be now be dry upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And then verse 40 says it was fulfilled. There's different ways we can read this, but I think one way we can read it is that Gideon doesn't see himself as the one. Like, he doesn't see himself as powerful. I really like the verse that Bryce read in verse 15 of chapter 6. I, I see that in the in the same space as Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith history, where he says, I'm basically a man of no consequence, and yet the Lord has called me to do this work. I think that's the image. There's some fun stuff with his name, Gideon. It comes from that word gadah, which means to cut down. And so if you look in verse 25, God calls him to, quote, cut down the grove and cut down or throw down the altar of Baal or Baal. And so he does, verse 28, it says that the men of the city rose early in the morning and they're throwing down these groves or these Balaam. And what's interesting here, and you know, I don't know what to do with this, but what's interesting is he gets like a second name in verse 32, literally in the Hebrew, Yeru Baal. It means let Baal contend. And so I think there's some stuff going on here that I, we don't have the whole story. I mean, why are you cutting down these images or these things associated with Baal and Asherah, but then you have a name that literally says, let Baal contend. I don't have the answer, but I see some interesting things happening here. But the overall message, I think, in chapter 6 is, like Bryce said, where Gideon is essentially saying, listen, I'm not a big deal. And God says, I know. That's why you are a big deal. (laughs) Yeah, the Lord's going to call you. And I think there's a really cool message we can take out of this. You know, whatever you're calling, just know where the power comes from. The power isn't in us. There's a beautiful moment in the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan helps Prince Caspian regain his throne. Caspian is the rightful heir to the kingdom of Narnia, but he's kind of a young boy, and his uncle Miraz kind of takes over the throne, and there's a battle, and Aslan helps Prince Caspian regain his throne. And then afterwards, Aslan the lion looks at Caspian and says, Do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? And Caspian responds, I don't think I do, sir. I'm only a kid. Good, said Aslan. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been proof that you were not. That's the spirit of Gideon. And I, 
I know some of you are going to question, why is he asking for a sign? I thought Jesus in the New Testament condemned people for asking for a sign. There's a difference between show me and then I'll believe, which the Jews were basically saying, and I believe, help thou mine unbelief and confirm my faith. And this is a very humble man, and the Lord is confirming his call. So now with that, watch what the Lord does. Speaking of Gideon meaning to cut down, watch what the Lord does in the very next chapter. Chapter 7, the Lord says in verse 2, "...the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands." Ready? Here's the key. "...lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me." That, I think, is the central message of this whole book. If you forget God in your prosperity, you are going to bang your head again. It's going to lead to pride, to sin, to pain. So the Lord says, we got to cut this army down so that it's obvious that the Lord won the victory. So he proclaims in verse 3, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart. And of the 32,000 warriors... 22,000 go home. So in verse 3, it says their return, meaning went home, 22,000. That left 10,000 people. And the Lord says in verse 4, too many, still too many. 10,000 people winning the battle, you'll still brag. You'll still think it was you that did the victory. So he brings them down to the water, and now the test is what, Mike? What's the test here? How are you going to drink your water? How are you, you know, what are you going to do? So verse 5, everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue like a dog, him thou shalt set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. So something going on with how they're drinking, they're not drinking right. And then in verse 6, it says, the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to the mouth, were 300. But all the rest of the people bow down upon their knees to drink water. Now, in the rabbinical commentaries, the rabbis love verse 6. And so they look at verse 6 and they say, listen, everybody else was bowing down. And they looked at this and said, they bow down to other gods. But those that put their hand in the water and put their hand to their mouth, we're going to go with those guys. So there may be some interesting readings of verse 6, but the idea is what Bryce is talking about. We're going to narrow it down to 300 because why, Bryce? We need to make it very clear that the Lord is the one that caused the victory. It has to be obvious. 300 men could not have won this victory. God was with us. And the point being, here's the central point of this whole book is that if you remember the greatness of God and the nothingness of man, do you you remember that from King Benjamin? If you give God credit for your prosperity, you will avoid pride, sin, and pain. The story of Gideon is screaming out loud and clear. You have to remember that it is God's greatness that brings the prosperity, not ours. That's the shortcut through the pride cycle. So the Lord says in verse 7 of chapter 7, by the 300 men that lapped, will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand. And so they do. Verse 19 and 20, 
of the seventh chapter. The 300 men go outside the Midianite camp. It's night. They have their lamps and they have their pitchers and they break them and they say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And basically the Midianites arise up and they're all killing themselves. And the 300 men blow the trumpets. And it just talks about how they kind of self-destruct. The Midianites are discomfited and the Israelites are able to defeat them under the hand of Gideon. Chapter 8, verse 10 says, There fell an hundred and twenty thousand men that drew sword. Josephus writes on this, and he essentially says, Listen, those 300 guys were the most scared of all Israel. And so his take on it is God used the weakest among them to defeat this great army, which kind of fits in this idea of humility. Now, certainly I don't know, and I don't know if Josephus is right, but that's certainly the tradition that he carries on as he writes his history. And so it's a beautiful image of Gideon working miracles, but Gideon saying, listen, it's not me, it's the Lord doing these things. And then a main message of the book of Judges is in the eighth chapter. So if you go to chapter eight, look at verse 22 and 23. So right after the defeat of their enemies, the men of Israel in verse 22 said to Gideon, rule thou over us, both thou and thy son and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you, the Lord shall rule over you. And that is a really big deal. I'm gonna say that, Gideon is saying, make God your king. That's what's important. Now, we're going to see that later when we get to Samuel, because when they choose Saul as a leader, as a king, that message is going to be repeated. What's interesting is in the founding of the United States of America, the early founders actually read some of these texts because they decided we wanted to set up a government where we don't have a king. And the Book of Mormon is going to say, okay, what is the ideal government? And the ideal government, according to Mosiah 29, is a righteous king. Yep. This is Mosiah 29, verse 13, Mike. If it were possible that you could have just men to be your kings, who would establish the laws of God and judge this people according to this commandment, yea, if you could have men for your kings who would do even as my father Benjamin did for this people, I say unto you, if this could always be the cause, then it would be expedient that you should always have kings to rule over you. But then he says, however, because you can't guarantee, remember King Noah? Because you can't guarantee that the king is always going to be righteous, that's not necessarily the best way. He says in verse 21, you cannot dethrone an iniquitous king, save it be through much contention and the shedding of much blood. So Mosiah 29 is essentially commentary on this question in the book of Judges. And it starts with this guy named Gideon and then in the next chapter, which Come Follow Me is going to skip, Gideon's son, Abimelech, is going to rise up and basically put himself as the guy in charge. Not a good guy. Now, Mike, let me add one thing to that idea. When they come to Gideon and say, you be our king because you brought the victory, it illustrates another common problem with humanity, and that is mistaking the temporary victory, giving credit to the wrong entity for our success. It's the very spirit of the message of Gideon 
that causes them to come and say, you be our king. I love these words from C.S. Lewis, where he said that we sometimes do the same thing. We credit music or we credit a story as being the, the thing itself. C.S. Lewis said, the book or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. In other words, they credited Gideon with the success, with the prosperity. Do you see that? It wasn't Gideon that brought the victory. It was God who brought the victory. That's the one who should be the king. And this whole message is, get the right king. Follow the right person. It was the Lord who brought the victory. And they seem to forget that immediately and go right to Gideon and say, hey, you should be our king because you brought the victory. You know, Bryce, it's clunky. But if you go to verse 24 of chapter 8 and you read verse 24 to verse 30, I think even Gideon falls into that because Gideon makes what the text is going to call a golden ephod, which became, verse 27, a snare unto Gideon and to his house. And then that becomes a snare unto his house in the sense that he has lots of children and lots of wives, and then it just kind of disintegrates. And so even as good as Gideon is, I think the author throws verse 24 to verse 30 in there to remind the readers, well, Gideon wasn't perfect either. I mean, what's he doing making this ephod? I certainly don't have, you know, there's a lot of bits we just don't have, but we go right from Gideon into the mess that is Abimelech's life. That is such a tragedy. How many times have we seen when they are learned, they think they are wise. When they are successful, they think the success came from themselves. So even Gideon missed the message that the Lord was trying to send through Gideon. Sad ending to a wonderful story. Yeah. Now, we're going to skip to chapter 13. We're going to do 13 through 16, but then we're going to circle back because, you know, we want to make sure we talk about the things in Judges. But for the sake of Come Follow Me, and for those of you that are out there teaching and you're, and you're looking at this going, okay, what do I do with this story? Chapter 13 through 16 is the story of Samson. And I think maybe first we should just talk about, okay, what does the story say? Like the Peshat, the basic reading of the text. And so we have, once again, the children of Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord in chapter 13, verse 1. And then we have this man of the family of Dan, and his name is Manoach, or Manoah in English. And it says that his wife is barren. And so we have the story of these people that can't have kids. And so this is kind of reminding us of Abraham, right? Abraham and Sarah. And an angel comes in verse 3, and they're told that they're going to bear a son, Samson. And then he's to do the Nazarite vow, verse 4 and 5. He's to do all the things the Nazarites are to do to, quote, deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And everything that happens after this, Samson doesn't do what he's supposed to do. So 
the Lord sent the right man with the right abilities at the right time, and Samson does not live up to that potential. Yeah. So big picture on the story of Samson. I'm going to weave what the text is saying also with a, a few rabbinic traditions, and I'll, I'll kind of call those out. He has, according to chapter 16, verse 13, seven locks of hair. It says in the text that his hair is the source of his great strength. Verse 18 says, quote, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, what I'm about to say, this is rabbinic tradition, but rabbinic tradition states that he was a giant whose shoulders span 60 cubits. According to rabbinic tradition, he has lame feet. The text doesn't say this, but the tradition does. Samson slays a lion with his bare hands. Samson eats honey. Think land of milk and honey. Men threaten the life of Samson's betrothed if she does not solve their riddle. You know, the mystery to where he gets his strength. That's chapter 14, verse 15. Samson's betrothed is given to another. And he is offered the younger daughter. Compare that to Jacob. That's Judges 15, verse 2. Angry, Samson takes 300 foxes. He ties their tails together and he sets them on fire into the crops of the Philistines. That's in the 15th chapter. Then the Philistines then burn Samson's would-be bride and her father. That's Judges 15, verse 6. After which Samson takes revenge, slaughtering them hip and thigh. The Philistines then form an army and Samson defeats them using the jawbone of an ass. That's Judges 15, 15, and 16. He then goes to Gaza, meets a harlot, takes out the gate of the city, two posts in the bar and all. That's chapter 16. And then finally, this woman, Delilah, tricks him into giving away the riddle to where he gets his strength. And then the Philistines shave him bald, and they take him to a place where they make fun of him, basically like a circus freak. And eventually, we read at the end of chapter 16 that he prays for strength, and God gives him strength that he's able to kill the Philistines. Verse 30, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death was more than they which he slew in his life. Okay, so we read this story and we start asking ourselves all kinds of questions. I mean, for example, does Samson literally tie up 300 foxes and send them into the fields of the Philistines? And what do we do with the blindness? What do we do with at least the rabbinical tradition that Samson had lame feet? And what do we do with the story of his defeat of the lion? And then what's going on with these Philistine women? And so what I want to do is just briefly look at, we have all of these things swirling around in antiquity that are the same. The themes are very similar. And those that do cross-cultural analysis see a common theme. And so big picture, what I think is going on is the author of these chapters in Judges is showing the descent of Samson. He rises when he's born. He's this good character and he slowly descends. He descends all the way down, and it's kind of a meta-narrative of the house of Israel. Samson's life is typifying the descent of Israel into madness 
or into sadness or into dissolution. The house of Israel is in big trouble. And Samson is the embodiment of these ideas. And so what we see in the story of Samson, what I think is going on is a packaging of older stories recontextualized to teach that idea that the Israelites are off track, that Samson's off track, and everyone that was around in the 7th century BC that knew these stories of the Mesopotamian gods would totally understand what's going on with Samson. And so what I want to do is just briefly look at an early myth from about 1500 BC. And if you get into this story of this Sumerian god, Nergal, and you read the story of Samson, you start to see lots of parallels. And it's from the people of Mesopotamia, and it's the myth of this god, and he's a solar god. His name is Nergal, and he's related to Shamash, which, remember, Shamash, the god of the sun, is the root of Samson's name. And that god is related to Nergal. He is a god of destruction, a solar god. And he's sent from the gods in the Sumerian pantheon down to the underworld to meet up with Erish Kigal. And before he goes, he's warned, as is Samson, to not have intimate relations with Erish Kigal. And he transgresses that boundary and he ends up bald, cross eyed, and lame. Now, that's important because that's essentially what happens to Samson. Samson ends up bald, blind, and lame in the sense that he's chained up. And so in the story of the descent of Nergal, he eventually marries Erish Kigal and has to spend six months of the year in the underworld as the married consort of Erish Kigal, this feminine deity, as gods of the underworld. And this myth is really old and is tied into a lot of other myths. You see, the 5th century BC Theban plays from Sophocles about the city of Thebes and the king called Oedipus. Oedipus has similar experiences to Samson and Nergal. We have lots of similarities. And in these Theban plays, Oedipus literally is the one of the lame foot. He's the lame-footed one. And so he's been lamed or, or maimed in the feet, just as this traditional story of Samson And also Oedipus and Samson both defeat a lion. In Oedipus Rex, we read that he defeated a lion when he defeated the Sphinx. The Sphinx was part lion, just as Samson defeated a lion. Now, Nergal, I don't have any record of him defeating a lion, but the symbol of Nergal, this Sumerian god, is a mace with a lion's head. So we have that symbol. We also have the symbol of darkness or being blinded. Both Oedipus and Samson are blinded. So in the Greek myth, Oedipus Tyrannus, when Oedipus learns his identity, he is blinded. Now, Nergal is called cross-eyed after his experience with Erish Kigal. He comes back up and ascends, and he is cross-eyed. All three of these stories, the Sumerian myth of Nergal, the Greek myth of Oedipus, and the story of Samson involve crossing boundaries related to intimacy. Samson crosses over, contrary to the warning in the Torah, to not make marriages with the enemies of Israel, and he does. He knows a Philistine woman. Oedipus and Oedipus Rex crosses boundaries and marries someone he should not be married to, and Nurgle crosses boundaries, and he has relations with Eris Kigal. All these stories are related to a descent. Samson descends down to Gaza. Nergal descends to the underworld. 
and Oedipus in Oedipus at Colonus, he goes to Hades via the bronze steps. He goes down the bronze steps, and Oedipus has this experience where we don't know how he disappears. We don't know if he dies. We just don't know. Like He just vanishes in Oedipus at Colonus. But his death actually blesses the city of Athens. There's this tension at the end of Oedipus Colonus between two kings that want Oedipus in his death to bless their land. And Oedipus goes against Creon's wishes to die near Thebes, and he dies near Athens at Colonus, and his death blesses the land. Samson's death blesses the Israelites in the sense that he kills Philistines. So there's some parallels there. All three of these stories involve identity and the question of having it revealed. Samson conceals his identity to Delilah by not telling her about the power of his strength and that it's connected to his hair. And three times he tells her lies. He doesn't tell her the the truth of the strength of his hair. And then on the fourth time when he tells her, she then shaves him bald and then takes away his strength. Oedipus's identity is fascinating because he has this story behind the story about his identity. And then when it's revealed, it causes him blindness. And Nergal, when he descends into the underworld, he disguises his identity in the effort of self-preservation. So essentially, in looking at these myths from the really earliest stuff, the 15th century BC myth of Nergal and his descent to the underworld, and the 5th century BC Theban plays from Sophocles, and the text and the story about Samson. I mean, I think Samson was written before Sophocles, probably around 697 to 643 BC. It's playing on all these tropes, all these ideas, everything from the lame feet to the defeat of a lion to going into the space of darkness. When Samson goes into Delilah's house, there's people in there. And the 16th chapter of Judges doesn't tell us that there's people there. It's because it's so dark. I mean, how could he know if it's that dark? And so when Nergal makes his descent to Eresh Kigal's habitation, literally her place of residence is called the Dark House. And it's a westward descent. When Samson descends to Gaza, which is as far west as you can get into Israel, it's this descent into the abyss. You're going down, down, down to Gaza, all the way there on the coast. And this is very similar to Oedipus's descent into sadness as we read Oedipus Rex. So all of these stories are kind of saying the same kinds of things. We're talking about desire, crossing boundaries of intimacy. We're talking about gates that are locked. Samson has many situations where he comes to gates that are locked. Uh, the city of Thebes was called the city of seven gates in Sophocles' play. We have locked gates in the Nergal myth. And so we start stacking these things up. We start seeing all these connections. One commentator put it this way. His name is Robin Baker. And he said, the judges were a representation of who Israel had become. They are the other. They're other than what they should have been. In many ways, they are connected to adultery or prostitution. Think Samson, think Jephthah. He goes on, the fact that Israel prostituted themselves with other deities following the death of Joshua not only created the otherness of Yahweh, it also meant that his representatives had to embody variation from the anticipated model. That is, they had to be the other. And because with each revolution of the cycle of apostasy, 
Israel's distance from Yahweh increased, so his representatives' divergence from the standard became greater. A simple comparison of Othniel and Samson displays the extent of the mutation of the model that takes place during the period covered by the major judges. Simultaneously, as we have seen, the judges are also reflectors of the condition of the Israelites. They are of their people exactly as they are of Yahweh. In other words, these judges, as they diverge more and more from the model that they should be, represent Israel to God. They, the judges, typify the house of Israel. So Samson is a perfect representation for the house of Israel. And so whether or not Samson does what he does with 300 foxes, or whether or not he was lame-footed or defeated a lion, to me, is not important. What is important is that the story of Samson is teaching these ideas. Samson is a man who's supposed to be righteous, and as long as he doesn't shave his head, he has great strength. But yet, spiritually, he shaves his head by leaving the covenant path and going to the Philistines. As one author has said, Samson was more Philistine than the Philistines. Now, before we move on, there's a lot of stuff we're skipping with the foxes. And I just want to reference this. Ovid, who was a Roman poet that lived from 43 BC to about 18 AD, talks about this. He talks about this image of the fox being burned and the crops being burned as a really old tradition that's related to myth and ritual. And we put that information in the show notes I see this connected to myth and ritual and also how the ancients viewed the stars and the seasons. So you can read that. I think it's valuable, but it's just a lot for this podcast. So we're just going to leave that there and you can go and read that on your own. But big picture, what we see here in the life of Samson is this descent, going down, going down to Gaza and eventually being in bondage just as the Israelites were. And the author of these chapters is using this story and the mythemes at his disposal, and he is injecting them into the story of Samson to give it life. And it's something that the hearers of the story would have resonated with. The people that lived in Israel in the 7th century BC, they knew these stories of the Mesopotamian gods. They clearly would have heard these stories. And so when they saw this portrayed in a play or heard these stories told around a fire, it had meaning to them and it helped them to see their place in history as Israelites, but also their place in the grand scheme of things. And so the story of Samson can be summarized in the Doctrine and Covenants. When Joseph Smith lost the manuscript of the Book of Mormon, the Lord gave this stinging rebuke, which is a summary of Samson. He says in section 3, verse 4, "...although a man may have many revelations and have power to do mighty works," there's Samson, "...yet if he boasts in his own strength and sets at naught the counsels of God and follows after the dictate of his own will and carnal desires." He must fall and incur the vengeance of a just God upon him. Gideon and Samson are a foil. The story of Gideon is that if you see that God is the one in this victory, then you gain the victory and you have success. Samson is the exact opposite of that story. Samson is going to credit himself, I'm the strong one. 
and unfortunately, he's going to boast in his own strength and fall and incur the vengeance of a just God. Do you see that contrast? It wasn't cutting his hair that lost his strength. It's the end of verse 20. The Lord was departed from him. That was the loss of Samson's strength. The Lord had made him a tool for the need. We need someone really strong to defeat the Philistines and free Israel. And he had every means to do so, but he credited himself. And when the Lord departed from him, he had no strength. He had no gift. And there's the fulfillment of section three, verse four. Yeah. So that's the story of Samson. Now, we're going to go back and just briefly look at Abimelech and the epilogue. There's two of them. So we can kind of you know, talk about the things that we skipped. So if you go to back to chapter 8, the story of Abimelech, he is the son of Gideon. And Abimelech's name literally is, my father is king. And he's a judge in my, my reading of Judges 9, not a good guy, doing horrible things. And he's certainly not being a judge in the sense of, the way that they should be as one who is a deliverer. And Abimelech kills all his brothers in seeking to rule over Israel. And that's in verse 5. He kills his brothers, but one of them, his name is Jotham, he doesn't get killed. And so they come to him, and he stands up, and he tells the people a parable. And it's interesting because it says in verse 5 that he hides himself And then this parable he tells them is a story of trees. And he talks about how the trees, and they're going to represent people, there was a time when the trees wanted to anoint a king over them. And they went to the olive tree, verse 8, and they said, rule over us. And the olive tree says, nope, not going to do it. And then they go to the fig tree in verse 10, and they say, rule over us. And the fig tree says, not going to happen. Verse 12, they go to the vine, same thing, he won't do it. And then they go to the bramble, verse 14, this thorny, awful bush. And the bramble says, you bet, I'll I'll totally do that. The bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And essentially this story, this parable by Jotham, He's basically saying, listen, only the low lowlifes, only the lowest of the low would want to be king. Why would you guys ever want to have a king? And what's interesting is in the literature of the Assyrians, the image of the sacred tree in Assyrian royal sculptures symbolized both the king as the perfect man and the divine order that he upheld. That image of a tree represents divine kingship. And so in this story... Jotham says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that for you guys. And so what happens then is Abimelech just goes and just causes all kinds of havoc. It says in verse 22 that he reigned over Israel for three years and that he has an evil spirit and he causes all kinds of problems and kills lots of people. And the main essence of the story, if you go to verse 45, Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He's destroying the people in Israel. And there's this tower in verse 47 in Shechem. And as he's causing these problems, verse 53 says, a certain woman cast a a piece of a millstone on his head and killed him. And then Abimelech is dead. And it's kind of like the story of everything we've been talking about, how everything just devolves into just chaos. And so we get a couple of other what we're going to call minor judges. That's going to be Tola and Jer. 
But then we get to verse 6 of chapter 10, where they're being knuckleheads, and they're going to get a new deliverer. But this man is Jephthah, and he's in chapter 11, verse 1, and it says, he was a mighty man of valor, but his mother was a harlot. So he's another example of an outsider. We have all these symbols of outsiders that are judges. And so he rises up as a judge and delivers them. But then we get to this really strange thing that happens in the 11th chapter. Go to verse 30 of chapter 11. This is really rough stuff. Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord, and he said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So that's the vow. And if you look in the chapter heading, this is what it says. Jephthah is chosen as the captain of the armies of Israel. And then if you skip to the end, it says, he makes a rash vow, which leads to the sacrifice of his only daughter. Now, that's the vow that he makes in verse 30 and 31. Well, he returns from defeating the Ammonites. And then it says in verse 34, that as he's coming, his only daughter, his only child comes out of the house. And remember the vow. The vow was, whatever comes out of my house, I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Verse 35 says, it came to pass when he saw her, he rent his clothes and he said, alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low for thou art one of them that trouble me. And then the rest of the chapter, it never says that he burned her or offered her up for a burnt offering, but the rest of chapter 11 is really troubling. I mean, I see why this is skipped and come follow me. Verse 39 says, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew no man and it was a custom in Israel. Now, that's really enigmatic. It's really ambiguous. There's lots of different ways to read this. One way to read this passage is just as it says with the assumptions that we take, that he literally sacrificed his daughter. Now, child sacrifice in Israel was looked down upon greatly, but perhaps that's what happened. The book of Judges, many say, was written during the time, the reign of Manasseh. Manasseh was from about 697 to 643, and he was a king that was wicked. And according to Kings, King says that, that he, Manasseh, sacrificed his children. And so this could be indicative of that. In other words, once again, a judge who does some really good things, but some really, really horrible things. It could be used as a way to denigrate King Manasseh. Like, this is what we shouldn't do. That's one reading. Another reading of these verses is that he dedicated her to the Lord. In other words, she is a female Samuel. Samuel will be dedicated to the Lord. And so that's another way to read it, is that she was dedicated to the Lord. There's other ways to read it too, and we get into the linguistics of this, and we put that in the show notes because we're just not going to do it here in the podcast. But just know there's different ways to read it. I don't think there's just one way. But that's Judges 11 with Jephthah. Once again, an outsider who delivers Israel, but then we have this troubling stuff in chapter 11. Okay, those are the judges. So to recap the judges, we've talked about Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Jephthah, and Samson. Then the end of Judges has two epilogues. The first one is in chapter 17 and 18, and it has to do with this individual named Micah, and he takes stolen silver and he makes a statue which becomes the center of a religious cult. And the priest was Micah's son. 
whom he himself appointed. During this period, the Levites sought livelihood, and then Micah hires a Levite and appointed him to be a priest rather than his son. Some scholars think that Micah's temple in the hill country of Ephraim is an allusion to Bethel, which was connected with Dan and that the criticism here is of the central temples of the northern kingdom. Remember, the kingdom of Israel splits after Solomon dies, and this text was probably written during the time after the kingdom split, probably after the northern kingdom was taken. Because if you go to chapter 18, verse 30 says, The children of Dan set up graven images, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan, until the day of the captivity of the land. That's the breadcrumb. That's the breadcrumb that tells us that this book was probably written after 721. So if it was written during the reign of Manasseh, everything in Judges, in my opinion, makes a lot more sense. But it doesn't mean I'm right. I don't know I wasn't there, but I'm just looking at stuff. So with that in mind, the main point you want to get out of chapter 17 and 18, like I said, you're skipping this and come follow me, but if you're reading the text and you're like, what's going on? One of the things we look at as we read this is the story of a Levite who's going north to Bethlehem and then to Dan, this northward journey. And remember, if you're facing east anciently and you're going north, that's the left hand. We're kind of going more and more left, as it were, down into this descent We're not keeping the commands of God. And so we have this false religion set up in the 17th and 18th chapter. And then concluding the book of Judges, and I see why this is skipped, is a graphic image of this Levite concubine who is violated. She's killed by these men, and it's very similar to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the end of what will happen if you don't follow Christ. Chapter 19, she's with her husband. Verse 22 says, As they were making their hearts merry, the men of the city, certain men of Belial, beset the house round about and beat at the door and spake to the master of the house, the old man. And they said, Bring forth the man that came in unto thine house that we may know him. And then in verse 24, the Levite concubine is offered up. And it says, do with them what seemeth good unto you. Verse 25, the middle of the verse says, they knew her and they abused her all night until the morning. And when the day began to spring, they let her go. And the husband gets up in the morning in verse 27, and his concubine was fallen down and her hands were upon the threshold of the door and she's dead. It's a very horrible story. And then in verse 29 and 30 of chapter 19, he takes her, his dead concubine, and he divides her and sent her to the coast of Israel. Very graphic image, an image of a woman destroyed, abused, cut up, and sent to the tribes of Israel. And the author says, there was no such deed done, nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider it, take advice, and speak your minds. And the rest of the book of Judges is a quest to try to find out Who were the men that did this to this woman? And all of Israel rises up to the tribe of Benjamin, and they basically say, hey, deliver us these men of Belial. That's verse 13 of chapter 20, where they say, turn them over to us. And the children of Benjamin won't do it. They won't deliver the perpetrators of this horrible crime. And so the rest of Judges is this massive civil war, and they almost destroy all the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, if you go to chapter 20, look in verse 44. There fell of Benjamin 18,000 men, 
all men of valor. Everybody is involved in this horrible civil war. And the end of the book of Judges is this tragic story of not having justice. There is no justice. Man, it even gets worse. Like the Benjaminites that do survive have to kidnap wives because of all the slaughter that's happened. And the author seems to be hinting at that every space outside of your home is dangerous if you're a woman. If you go outside your home, the story of the Levite concubine says, well, this will happen to you. Look at chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his eyes. I mean, that pops up over and over again in these last chapters. It's again in Judges 17, verse 6. It says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his eyes. Over and over again. It's in the first verse of chapter 18. And so some people look at the end of Judges and say, this is a good segue into Samuel, because Samuel is going to be the one that introduces the idea of kings. Others say, no. What this means is they didn't have Yahweh as their king. If they would have made Jesus Christ their king, they wouldn't have had this mess. And as rough as this story is, we have a similar story like this in the Book of Mormon, don't we, Bryce, with the destruction of the Nephites. Mormon writes a letter to his son Moroni reporting on the depravity and the devastation that's going on in the war. He describes in Moroni chapter 9, first of all, what the Lamanites are doing to the Nephites, and then he graphically describes what the Nephites are doing to the Lamanites. They are eating Lamanite women. And Mormon goes on to say, I can't commend these people unto God. They've lost their civilization. Yeah. If you go to Moroni 9, verse 18, we read, Oh, the depravity of my people, they are without order and without mercy. And he says at the end of verse 19, My tongue cannot tell, neither can be written. And now, my son, I dwell no longer upon this horrible scene. Behold, thou knowest the wickedness of this people. Thou knowest that they are without principle, and their past feeling, and their wickedness doth exceed that of the Lamanites. Mormon seems to be telling the same story that we read at the end of the book of Judges. And the story is, if Christ isn't your king, then you will be without civilization. I mean, that's essentially Moroni 9 verse 11. And to the degree in which we do, we can have order. And my take on where we are as, as a country right now is we're doing worse than we were two, three generations ago. And the degree to which we right the ship and follow Christ is the degree to which we will have blessings and order. And I think that is the main message of the book of Judges where we've come full circle. I see why it skipped and come follow me, but I didn't want to skip it in this podcast because I think that's an important message. The image of a woman who's been violated and killed, you can't get any more tender than that. God is the God of widows and orphans. He loves his children. And so this image, as graphic as it is, is God holding up a sign saying, this is the end of what will happen if you don't follow Christ. And we have the same kind of image at the end of the Book of Mormon. I mean, I know we, we don't focus on Moroni 9. Thankfully, the Book of Mormon ends in Moroni 10. Yeah. Mormon's final words as he looks over this whole battlefield. Mormon says, O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? 
O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if you had not done this, ye would not have fallen. But behold, you are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, O ye fair ones, how is it that you could have fallen? But behold, you are gone, and my sorrow cannot bring your return. That's the ending of the Book of Mormon. Now, the reason the Book of Mormon ends on such a sad story is because we are the final chapter. The end of Judges is going to be a very depressing read this week, but we are the final chapter. Are we as a people, are we as individuals going to learn the lesson that God is the shortcut? That remembering his greatness, that remembering his hand in our blessings, turning to him in our pain, God is the shortcut that avoids pride, sin, and pain. Now, that doesn't mean all pain comes because we've abandoned God. I don't want to suggest that because part of this mortal experience is dealing with pain. I'm not suggesting that. But turning away from God brings pain. And we can avoid a lot of that pain by bringing God back into our lives. I think the whole point is to go back to that statement from Gideon that says, God is your king. When God is your king, you shortcut through the painful parts of the pride cycle. So I hope that we will learn from these. I hope that we will rise up from the ashes of these terrible stories And we'll stop banging our heads by choosing God in prosperity and in pain. And with that, we thank you for your time. And we'll see you next week when we cover the book of Ruth and the first part of Samuel. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.